Ecclesiastes chapter one, beginning in verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Obviously, Solomon is legendary for wisdom. Over and over again, he's described as perhaps the wisest man apart from the Lord Jesus Christ who ever lived. And in chapter one of Ecclesiastes, the preacher paints a picture of living in a world that doesn't seem to change in verses four through seven. The earth beneath our feet, the sky above our head, the wind blows in verse six, the the waters crash on the beaches in verse seven. Nothing seems new. Everything seems old, according to verses eight through eleven. And even though human beings desperately want and crave something new, according to verse eight, nothing seems to be new. So the preacher preaches That the world wants something, something to fill the emptiness and the void. But even that brings weariness. Nothing is changed, verses 1 through 7. Nothing is new, verses 8 through 11. And now the preacher continues to probe the question of the meaning and the significance and the relevance and the purpose of life. And suggests that little is really understood in verses 12 through 18. The dilemma for the preacher is how can we possibly know the meaning of life if nothing can be genuinely understood? And the writer begins with the failure of secularism in verses 2 through 11. And remember, when we say secularism, we mean life apart from God. And when we say life apart from God, we mean life apart from the God of the Bible, life apart from the revelation of the Bible, life apart from, in our day and age, the person of Jesus Christ. And then he adds the failure of wisdom in verses 12 through 18. And when he's talking about wisdom, he's not talking about godly wisdom. He's not talking about the revelation of the Bible. He's talking about that which you can see and touch and taste and smell and quantify and think through. And that's part of the challenge. The writer adds not only 
the failure of secularism and the failure of wisdom in verses 12 through 18. But he's going to add to the list of failure seeking pleasure in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then life's ultimate end in chapter 2, verses 12 through 23, which is death. And so, as he talks about squeezing pleasure out of life, he discovers that sometimes the juice that you squeeze out of life turns sour in your mouth and becomes bitter to swallow. And so the preacher in this particular passage reminds us of three things that we have been given a great task to accomplish. And for some, it's a very unhappy task to find true significance in verse 13. We're frustrated in that task in verse 14. We want life to matter. We want to gain from this life. But it eludes us. There are twists. There are gaps in our thinking according to verse 15. And so again, in verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And you'll remember in verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The preacher is a word that describes a person who presides over an assembly of people who are really conducting an inquiry. And he proclaims that he's the son of David and that he's the king of Israel in Jerusalem. And if Jerusalem was noted for anything, it was noted of being the place that David had conquered and become the capital of a covenant people whose responsibility it was to know and love and honor and serve God. But that isn't really the point that's being made. When he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, he's doing it from the perspective of the question that's being asked, the meaning of life. And so the preacher's search begins not at the bottom of the social barrel, but when he's reached the top of achievement. You know, it's one thing for a person to say, I want to know the meaning of life, but they've never had a job and they've never had a relationship, and they've never had an education. They've never done anything. They've never impressed anybody. But Solomon says, I'm at the very top, not at the very bottom. And the preacher's pessimism is meant to be contagious. And the preacher wants to cut off the escape routes of the person who's going to make the inquiry like personal wisdom apart from God. And so he says in verse 13, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. And remember, that expression becomes an important one under the sun, under heaven. This burdensome task has God given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. So when he writes, and I set my heart, that means the invisible internal portion of who you are, what you think and what you feel and what you believe. He says, I set my heart to seek and search or seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. And in this instance, under heaven means the world in which we live in, the world in which you can see, the world in which you interact with. 
Solomon will make some preliminary comments or observations. In other words, in this inquiry that he is making, he's going to draw what scientists call a tentative conclusion. Or he's going to form a hypothesis. Now, for those of you who got past 6th, 7th, and 8th grade science, you know that in any kind of an inquiry, you form a proposition or you form a hypothesis. You gather information. You test the information. You form tentative conclusions. And then you test those conclusions. We've come to call that the scientific process. And that's exactly what the preacher is doing. He's going to make some preliminary comments or observations. And remember, he's doing this from a very human perspective, using human wisdom and human observation. As a matter of fact, when he says, and I set my heart to seek and search, He's using an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language, which basically means, in a very real sense, to discover the root of a matter, or the source of a matter, or the beginning of the matter. That's the idea behind the Hebrew word, seek. When I was a young man growing up in high school, we were forced to read Herman Hesse's book, Siddhartha. And in it, there was a quote that I never forgot. He has the Buddha saying, seeking means to have a goal, but finding means to be free. When I first heard that and read that, I wasn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And I thought, seeking means to have a goal and finding means to be free. It all sounds so stupid. But... This is exactly what the preacher is doing. He's forming a hypothesis and he's seeking to either affirm or deny the hypothesis. He makes the initial observation and then he wants to provide an adequate explanation. So he's going to continue the search and he's going to continue it in a detailed fashion. It means to seek deeply. And the word search means to search thoroughly over the widespread or what you and I might call all available resources. In other words, what he is saying is, I purpose in my heart to conduct an exhaustive search. For those of you who are in graduate school or for those of you who have ever had to pursue a Ph.D. in a Ph.D. program, what your job is to take the sum and the substance of everything that has been written on the subject at hand and for you to uncover every stone, to look up and down, left and right, to figure out a new way to look and to conduct the search in order to prove or disprove your hypothesis. This is an exhaustive study. And all this is done under heaven, which means it's a limited worldview. This is a horizontal study of what you can taste, touch, smell, think about. This isn't A vertical study where you're interested in what God has to say or what God might reveal. But Solomon is at a distinct disadvantage because guess what? He's already heard from God in his life. You know, it's one thing to grow up in a world and have your teachers and your instructors say, look, I want you to tell me, but I don't want you to include any kind of supernatural content. 
Remember, we live in a world where people will dismiss a supernatural premise on its face. Wisdom has value. But can wisdom solve the problems of life? Wisdom has value. But can you think your way through to the problem of what is real? Why are we here? What are we doing here? Is sin real? Is heaven real? Is hell real? How can you know the answers to those questions unless God is willing to reveal himself? Here's the good news. God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Solomon lived about 1000 B.C. and some 600 years after Solomon wrote these words, Plato wrote, quote, perfect wisdom has four parts vis-a-vis wisdom, the principle of doing things right. Justice, the principle of doing things equally in public and private. Fortitude, the principle of not flying or flying from danger, but meeting it. In other words, the difference between cowardice and and what's the word I'm looking for? Courage. That's the word I'm looking for. The difference between cowardice and courage and temperance, the principle of subduing desires and living moderately. People in every age and every circumstance have talked about wisdom. Remember, when the Bible talks about wisdom, it isn't just simply knowing things. It's knowing the right thing to do with the information that you possess. You know, it's one thing to know that a train on the tracks, coming down the tracks, going quickly, can hurt you. It's another thing to get up off the tracks and leave the tracks. Having an understanding that the train can hit you and hurt you is very different from leaving the tracks. In the second grade, I learned a rhyme. My teacher, Mrs. Standorf, God rest her soul, would say to the young scholar, Gino Geraci, a wise old owl sat on an oak. The more he saw the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why aren't we like that wise old bird? This was Mrs. Sandor's polite way of telling me to keep my mouth shut and listen. The story is told that a great king once came to Solomon and he asked him for a motto. It must be one, he said, that shall be as much use to me in times of trouble as in times of prosperity. And the wise king gave him his motto, and he had it engraved on a ring which he wore continually. And this is what the motto said. Even this shall pass away. Even this shall pass away. In times of trouble, will that work? In times of prosperity, will that put it in a right perspective? The preacher wants to know the meaning and the purpose of life as God intends life to be. And he describes the job as this burdensome task 
that God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. Clearly, we're left with the impression that this job is designed to wear us out. But it's one that each and every one of us has to come to grips with. Life is is a hard job. The task isn't going to be easy. But apparently, I think what Solomon or the preacher is in fact saying is that by engaging in the task, let me just be bold here, that when you do that, you honor God. It's a God-honoring thing to say, Lord, does my life matter? Does this life matter? Does this world matter? Do the circumstances that I find myself in matter? Is my life real? Is my life necessary? What am I supposed to do with my life? Warren Wiersbe in his commentary, Be Satisfied, writes, quote, The scientist tells us that the world is a closed system and nothing has changed. The historian tells us that life is a closed book and nothing is new. The philosopher tells us that life is a deep problem. And nothing can be understood. But Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24. And he has miraculously broken into history to bring new life to everyone who will trust him. And that's the challenge. The challenge becomes, can I get accurate and adequate information from what the Bible has to say. The scientists, the philosopher, and the historian all have one thing in common. And that is the need to explain their own existence. Human beings can't remain indifferent to the plaguing question, why do I exist why does existence exist? We want to know what life is and where it's going. And the preacher speaks of the compulsion behind the question. And that's the burden. That's the burden. But I want to suggest something to you that I think is very, very important. This is a God-given burden. This is a pressing problem that God places On the heart of each individual. And the reason why I want to bring this up to you is because when you're talking with your mother or your father who may or may not believe the Lord or your brothers and your sisters, your husband or your wife, your neighbors or your friends. When when you talk to them and and you ask them a simple question like, hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? It's been my experience that people want to talk about these things and they're not threatened or intimidated when you ask them what they believe. It's been my experience that they'll tell you exactly what they believe. I believe this or I believe that or I don't believe this or I don't believe that. It's when you ask them the question. Tell me what you believe about heaven and tell me what you believe about hell and tell me what you believe about Jesus Christ that all of a sudden things get a little bit interesting. But I'm going to suggest something else to you. 
that everyone has a belief about heaven and they have a belief about hell and they have a belief about Jesus Christ. The, the belief might be true, it might be false, it might be partially true, it might be partially false, but they have a belief. I was reading a, uh, a, a, a blog and the writer wrote, quote, He's from England. He said, it's a sobering thought that 56 million people die every year. They leave. And one day you will join them. Dead. Dead like Marley. He's making, you know, Christmas Carol. Marley, the ghost of Marley. Dead like a doornail. He writes, I mention this because it seems to be one of a number of fundamental considerations that should guide the choices of each day. One of the things is that we are alive. The gap between the two is all we can count on. And we don't know how long that is until the end is very close. What would happen if we were all more aware of our finite existence? What would we do in the streets as the Beatles sang? Would work come to a stop? Would anyone care about the presentation to the board or the 360 appraisal? Would we come to the office energized or not come at all? Would the boss be told the truth about his failings to his face? Or would his weaknesses be forgotten in a Bono-style outpouring of red love? My own death clock, he, go, he went to deathclock.com. And at deathclock.com, it estimates how much time you have left. You put in your, your birthday. You put in um, your weight. You put in your body mass index. And then it, it spits out a number for you. He writes, my own death clock estimates that I have 1,848,070,000 seconds left to live. And with a checkout date of Wednesday, September 2nd, 2066. I thought, I've got to go check this place out. So I went to deathclock.com and I typed in my birthday. And I typed in my weight. And I typed in my body mass index. And it spit out Thursday, January 3rd, 2030. That's 20 years from now. It estimated that I have 610 million 179,000 seconds left to live. And I thought, what am I going to do with this time? And then I remembered something. That the Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die. And then the judgment. That we are really not promised tomorrow. That even though a person's clock may say that if you're an average person living an average life, you may live to the age of the average age of 74. But is your life really guaranteed tomorrow? It really isn't. <laughs> and so we have this burden. Why am I here? What am I doing? And in verse 14, the preacher says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Remember what he said, and we've already talked about what it means, things that are done under the sun. In other words, it's the way that people live their lives in the very real world in which we live. And all is vanity. And remember how we defined vanity that vanity is what's left after a filthy soap bubble pops. 
It's air. And he talks about the grasping for the wind. So this is the tentative conclusion. I've seen everything under the sun. I've done it all. I've seen it all. Indeed, all is empty, meaningless, grasping for the wind. How can you possibly know the meaning of life? And this is the tentative conclusion that I'm going to suggest to you. One of two things is true in this passage. How can you possibly know the meaning of life if you just simply observe life? That's Possibility number one. The second possibility is how can you possibly know the meaning of life if you turn your back on God? I prefer the second one, and and there's a good reason why. Because if you're not aware that there's a God, if you're not aware that he loves you, if you're not aware that he created you so that you could have friendship and fellowship with you, if you're not aware of the problem of sin, then the chances are the solution to the problem of sin will constantly be a little bit past your reach. How can you possibly know the meaning of life if at the very beginning of the inquiry you refuse to even consider whether or not there's a God? So the preacher has set a course, a destination. Look what it says. I've seen all the works that are done. This is the destination under the sun. I think it might mean. Let's leave God out of the picture. Let's take heaven's claims off the table. Now, by the way, do we live in a world, particularly in the academic world, where professors will say, we're willing to philosophically talk about the meaning of life or the search for meaning or this or that, but we can't put God on the table and we can't put the Bible on the table and we can't put the revelation of God on the table. What kind of a conclusion are you going to come to? You think it's going to be pessimistic or is it going to be optimistic? I think it's going to be very, very pessimistic. If you begin the inquiry from the position and the vantage point of let's simply look at the physical and material universe. Then you're going to run into an incredible obstacle. But the writer of Ecclesiastes in verse 15 says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be numbered. What does this mean? You remember in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, when we were talking about Solomon and his resume, it said that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. And remember, Song of Solomon was one of those songs. I suspect that this is one of Solomon's 3,000 proverbs. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. What is he saying? I suspect that what the preacher is saying in part is what happens when justice fails? What happens when the norms of right and wrong, good and evil, the absence of truth or the presence of truth are denied? In other words, if you take something that's straight, there's a God, there's right, there's wrong, there's true, there's false. 
and you bend it and you twist it. Who will share what they have when you have nothing? By the way, when you read that, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. I'm going to ask you a question. How much of your time is spent trying to straighten up something that's been twisted or bent? How much time do you look at something and you go, wow, this relationship is twisted or bent or broken. Oh, this government is twisted, bent or broken. Oh, this culture is twisted, bent or broken. Oh, this is twisted, bent or broken. Oh, this is twisted, bent or broken. How much of your life consists of trying to fix and put your energy into that which is bent and that which is twisted and that which is broken? By the way, could you successfully, let's just say that you're not quite as old as me and you don't have 600 million seconds left. Let's say you have a little time on your hands and you have as much as a billion seconds left in your life. Could you actually literally occupy every moment of every day that you have left trying to fix something that's broken? To make straight something that's twisted? (laughs) And what is lacking cannot be numbered. What does that mean? Could it possibly mean that you try to provide something that doesn't even exist? When I was preparing to teach the book of Ecclesiastes, I began collecting a bunch of stuff in order to begin my studies so that I could teach you guys. So I began to look for my copy of the preacher's outline and sermon Bible on the book of Ecclesiastes. I have a fairly large library, and so I looked at every book here, and I looked at every book at home, and then I opened my boxes and looked at my books. I thought I had purchased a copy. I combed through my library for hours. I finally gave up. I called the publishers. They said, the book doesn't even exist. See, you're laughing, but I need to ask you a question. Have you ever spent any time looking for something that wasn't real and didn't even exist? See, you laugh at me because, ha ha, Gina is looking for something that doesn't even exist. But I'm going to suggest to you that a lot of people are looking for something that doesn't even exist. I was watching the Science Channel. And then I flipped back to the Nova Channel where they were trying to dig up bones that are seven million years to establish the fact that human beings are descended from lower life forms. That the Bible isn't true and that the account in Genesis is not true. That there is no God. There's no Adam. There's no Eve. There's no sin. That we're just simply living in a world the product of evolutionary chance, random time, the confluence of of events that somehow resulted in you. And the man spent four years in the dirt and the dust of the Sahara Desert looking for bones in the hopes that he could find the missing link. Prove that the Bible's not true and that the account of Genesis is not true. Why do you suppose someone would devote that much of their life and that much of their time to try to come to the intellectual conclusion that there is no 
God that sin isn't real and that you'll never have to stand before a just and a holy God. Kenneth Taylor paraphrases this passage. What is wrong cannot be righted. It's water over the dam. There's no use thinking of what might have been. And that's a truism. But I want to ask you a question. Is it completely true? Did Jesus ever straighten out something that was crooked? What do you think the answer is? Did Jesus ever provide something that was lacking? Did Jesus ever take nothing and then make something? Can Jesus take something that is broke and twisted and bent? Can Jesus take something that is broken, twisted, and bent like your heart, like your sin, like the circumstances of your life? Can Jesus take something that has been so gnarled and twisted and broken and bent and straighten it out? Can Jesus make straight a way back to the Father? The answer is yes. When Jesus fed the multitudes and he took a few loaves and a few fish and he multiplied it, he took something and he made a whole lot more. But is it possible for God to take nothing and make nothing something? I think that the answer is yes. I want to ask you another question. Would you describe yourself as a curious person? Do you value answers? Do you think that there is an answer to most questions? Do you think God is obligated to answer your questions? Look at verse 16. I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness. And and gained more wisdom than all who went before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. Think of Solomon of being the ancient Bible answer man. He's the original Bible answer man. If anyone was ever intellectually equipped to answer the most difficult questions, to solve the most difficult puzzles, to put the philosophical pieces in the right place at the right time with the right perspective, it was Solomon. And remember what we've already learned, that the Bible teaches that Solomon gained a reputation in the ancient world for his Amazing wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 4, there is a note. And I think you and I have talked about it, but I want to read once again 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 34, where it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. 
Then Ethan, the Ezrite, and Haman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees. From the cedar tree of Lebanon, even into the hyssop that springs out of the wall, he spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish, and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He was the first, first taxonomist. In other words, hundreds and hundreds of years before Aristotle, he began a specific inquiry into the nature of reality. And he did so because he was curious. And he did so because he asked questions. And he did so because he believed that there were answers to questions. But I'm going to ask you an even harder question. Just because you have a question, is God obligated to answer all of your questions? No. I think certain questions really do matter, and I think questions that God really wants you to ask and desires to answer. When you ask the question, why am I here and what am I doing here? I think God wants to give you an answer. I think when you come to grips with the problem of your own sin and you say, what in the world am I going to do with my sin? God wants to give you an answer that there's a provision in Christ Jesus. That you don't have to bear your sin and you don't have to bear your guilt and you don't have to walk in wickedness and estrangement from God. There's a reason why David's son and his future famous son, Jesus, is going to die on the cross and rise from the dead. It's not wrong to ask questions and it's not wrong to search for the answers. And Christians aren't simply called to ask the right questions in order to get the right answers. You see, Christians are called to live a little bit differently. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The Bible says that we've been given promises. In the New Testament, Peter writes about exceedingly great and precious promises that by these we might become partakers of the divine nature. You see, you as a Christian don't have just simply the responsibility or the obligation to ask questions. You've been given answers in the Bible. Answers. Real answers. But not just answers. And I'm going to even go one step further and say, these are answers that also fall under the category of promises. And that if you will embrace those promises, your life can be a different life. Let me be careful here. I am not suggesting that we substitute faith for explanations or explanations for faith. What I am saying is this. We're called to live not by answers, but by faith. Now, someone might hear me say that and accuse me of being anti-intellectual. I want to be very clear here. I am one of those people who believes that God gave you a brain and that God gave you a brain to think with and that God gave you a brain to ask questions and look for answers. But when the Bible says that we're called to live by faith and not by sight, 
people often want a rational, reasonable explanation for every answer. But remember what Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse 29. He said, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. He is saying that in the context of appearing in his resurrection body before a skeptic, Thomas. And remember, Thomas' statement was, there's no way that I'm going to believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead unless he appears right before me and I take my hand and I stick it in the print of his, of his body and I place it in the cleft of his, of his chest where the Roman spear has divided his ribs. And remember what Jesus invites. He says, here I am. Go ahead, place your hands. He says, give up. Jesus basically says to Thomas, stop being an unbeliever and start believing. And it's in that context that Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So you might think, I'm never going to believe in Jesus unless he materializes right before me. And I might be able to say, how did you know it was Jesus? I mean, could it be a demonic entity that materializes right before you and pretends to be somebody that he's not? The Hadron Collider that's buried under parts of Switzerland at a cost of $9 billion is the most expensive piece of equipment ever built by human beings in order to conduct experiments. Are you guys familiar with the Hadron Collider? I think it's a very cool instrument. The purpose of the Hadron Collider is to answer the most basic question of physics. What is our universe made of? What are we made of? How do basic particles interact with one another? And so they built a nine million billion with a B instrument in order to smash reality at the subatomic level in order to release the forces with the hopes that if we can understand what the universe is made of and what we are made of, then we might have answers to questions. But make no mistake about it. They may discover further and further how that which is invisible makes up that which is visible. But even if they make that discovery, will they ever be able to ask and answer the question, why am I here? With the simple knowledge of the constituent elements of the universe, is that, is that going to provide a satisfying solution to the problem of why I'm here? <laughs> I don't think so. In verse 17 it says, And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. I, wisdom I know about. But why does the preacher introduce the subject of madness and folly? It may come as a shock to you. But the preacher has dedicated his life, his strength, his mind. He wants to learn about the wisdom of the ages. And since we're being honest, he's basically even saying, look, 
I want to be logical and I want to be rational and I want to be reasonable. But here's what else he's saying. I'm willing to be irrational and unreasonable. In other words, I'm willing to allow this question and the course of my question. I am willing to do things and go places and do things that might seem foolish or even mad. I grew up in a, in a world where there was a professor at Harvard named Timothy Leary. He introduced, in part, the world to the subject of altered states of consciousness through D-lysergic acid diethylamide. It's, of course, come to our culture as LSD and other kinds of things. We now call it medical marijuana. We didn't call it medical marijuana back in those days. We called it herb and pot. As a matter of fact, that's where I learned my first Spanish words, stensemia. I thought it was a place in Mexico. I had no idea that it meant no seeds. But here's what Solomon is basically saying. I am willing to expand my consciousness. I am willing to even push the threshold of consciousness in order to try to determine whether or not I can answer my question. But here's his conclusion. But it didn't do any good. He was grasping for something that he had no chance of holding on to. He said it was like the wind. And you might think of it as altered states of consciousness. For him, it might be drunkenness. For him, it might be madness. But the word, word translated madness means, in this particular context, the opposite of wisdom. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't be wrong to translate this word absurd. Has anyone ever said to you, well, that's absurd. And Solomon said, I am willing to even ask and answer what seems like absurdities in order to get to the answer. You know, we might think of wisdom as following the rules of logic and madness as a willingness to entertain ideas that may not fit neatly into what you perceive to be the category of wisdom. And so Solomon clearly isn't anti-intellectual. Clearly, he wants to know more. He's pursued education. He's pursued wisdom. He's pursued knowledge. We might even suggest that Solomon begins to look to the mystical. Perhaps even the irrational. Well, does this mean that mechanical and technological and scientific advances serve no purpose when he says in the text and he says, look, I commune with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness. My heart has understood great wisdom. I set my heart to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. And so mechanical, technological, scientific advances don't matter. No, that's not the point that Solomon is making. Scientific, mechanical, technological advances isn't what he's looking for. By the way. Because you have access to more information than any generation before you. Because you can drive faster and go faster and be in places that took other people weeks and months and even years to get to. Your ability to access information and go places and do things 
Does that mean you now have a satisfying solution to the problem of the meaning of life? Are people able to know more and go away from God faster than they've ever gone ever before? Now, we thank God for the qualities of life and medicine, transportation that have been made by scientific exploration and discovery. We thank God for people who ask questions about sickness and disease and how to combat plagues and drought and hunger and pain. I have more information on the hard drive of my computer than some ancient libraries of major civilizations. But does that mean we know more than we've ever known? Do we understand God better than we've ever understood him? If we know so much, how do you explain the genocide in eastern Turkey at the turn of the last century? How do you explain genocide in eastern Europe in the middle of the last century? How do you explain the genocide in Rwanda in 1994 where 800,000 people are killed in a matter of moments and a world watches and pretends like it's not happening? For all the benefits that we've embraced from the proliferation of technology, communication, education, intellectual achievement. Do we love better than we've ever loved before? Or have we reaped the ability to destroy ourselves in a single generation? My friend Josh McDowell visited college campuses all over America He even came to my school in the 1970s. He traveled in the 1980s, and one of his favorite statements was, if education is the key to life, then universities would be the most moral, the most ethical, and the most spiritual centers in any nation. Is that true? Does education equal contentment? Are the most educated people that you know the most satisfied in their life? We value education. But I suspect that Western civilization and philosophical naturalism has placed a value on education that goes way beyond what it was ever intended to do. Will wisdom and knowledge and understanding Bring you to a place of recognizing your sin and the need for a Savior. Not if you look just simply under the sun. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and even though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Let's do the math. Knowledge minus love equals zero is right. Let's continue to do the math. How is it that in our culture that knowledge plus power equals creative ways to rebel against goodness and reason and common sense? Help me. Help me understand. Help me understand how the wisdom of this world and the knowledge that it imparts 
asks you to not consider the claims of Christ or the revelation of the Bible. You know, there was a person who saw John Wesley. He was a very, very famous Bible teacher and evangelist. He saw him coming down the street one day, and this man was walking, straddling the pavement. And he said, I'd never get out of the way of a fool. And John Wesley walked into the gutter, and he says, but I always get out of the way of a fool. In verse 18, the preacher says, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Why would he say such a thing? Is there a dark side to wisdom, do you suppose? With certain knowledge and with certain information and with certain wisdom, does that mean that there's certain responsibilities? Grief is often the place where sadness and oppression and loss congregate. There are people who love themselves. There are people who are oppressed and lonely. There are people who want wisdom and only wisdom. They want knowledge and only knowledge. But they do not want the wisdom of God and they do not want the knowledge of God. And if you have all of the wisdom that this world has to offer... And if you have all of the knowledge that this world has to offer. And if you have none of the revelation of the Bible. And if you have none of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to increase sorrow. The preacher possesses intellectual advantages. He possesses social advantages. He possesses political and resource advantages. But the preacher preaches and says that great wisdom only adds to his problems, increases his difficulties, expands his sorrows. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, people who never ponder the problems of life who live innocently day after day, never feel the pain of wrestling with God and seeking to understand His ways. The more we seek knowledge and wisdom, the more ignorant we know we are. This only adds to the burden. All our knowledge brings us nearer and nearer our ignorance, wrote T.S. Eliot in choruses from the rock. An old proverb says, a wise man is never happy. Why? Why? Because his or her wisdom is a wisdom that only informs in the here and now. Adam and Eve fell in a perfect paradise. Eve believed Satan's lie and disobeyed God, leading to real sorrow. Satan tempted Eve Satan said, if you have the knowledge of good and evil experientially, this will make you like God. And by the way, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they obtained the experiential knowledge of good and evil, did it add to their wisdom and their knowledge or did it add to their sorrow? Hey, when you added to your repertoire, lying and cheating and stealing, Infidelity, impurity. When you added to your repertoire drunkenness, 
When you added to your repertoire rebellion and resistance against God, did it make you more knowledgeable and more wise or did it fill you with more sorrow? If you're if you're honest, you'll tell the truth. That the burden of guilt and the burden of sin and the burden of pain didn't help you, that it hurt you. So what happens when you devote your whole life to building an empire and chasing a dream only to find yourself dissatisfied? Solomon is going to answer the question. Charles Swindoll writes, and this is important, he says, If there is nothing but nothing under the sun, our only hope must be above it. If there is no satisfaction to be found in this world, then the only thing which will satisfy must be beyond this world. If nothing but nothing under the sun, our only hope must be above it. If there is no satisfaction to be found in this world, then the only thing which will satisfy must be beyond this world. He writes, if a man who had everything, who investigated everything visible, then the one thing needed must be invisible. Lasting fulfillment will not come from things that we can see and touch. It has to come from God. And the reason, the reason, if you will, that the invisible God who brings a message of hope in a dark and wicked world, if the thing that really does provide the satisfying solution to the problem of sin and the meaning of life, if the reformers were right when they wrote the Westminster Confession and they said that the purpose of man is to glorify God, then it becomes impossible for you to glorify God unless you come to Him. Experience forgiveness and hope. Redemption and reconciliation. If there is satisfaction found in this world, then why is the consistent testimony one of emptiness and darkness and loneliness? And if the consistent testimony of the gospel is that if you will turn to Christ and away from your sin, if you will abandon your sin and your unbelief, there's freedom, there's forgiveness, there's hope. Then it seems to me to make good sense to at least make an inquiry into the claims of Christ. We're going to have communion in just a moment. What I'd like you to do is retain the elements until we all have an opportunity to participate together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who finds themselves in that empty and lonely place or in that wicked and guilty place. Lord, they've come here and they need answers and they need hope. That they've discovered that there's no satisfaction in this world. And they're willing to entertain the idea that there is something satisfying beyond this world. 
That they look around themselves and they see that the visible world lets them down. But that the invisible world can fill the emptiness that's on the inside. Lord, like Augustine, we believe that there is a God-shaped hole inside of each and every person. And that there are only two things that people will attempt to fill that hole with. Pride and the person of Jesus. Pride is wicked and deceiving. It is indeed great and large. And it seems amazing to me how much space pride can occupy. But Lord, it doesn't seem quite large enough to fill the emptiness on the inside. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that in that spirit of brokenness and humility and a willingness to turn from sin and turn to the Savior, that that person who finds themselves here tonight in wickedness and rebellion will take this time even now to pray that simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I I believe that the meaning of life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. If anything else is real, I know that my guilt is real. I know that my sin is real. I know that the emptiness is real. I know that the wickedness is real. And Lord, I want to experience hope and cleansing and forgiveness and a right relationship with you. And Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ came to provide that hope, that forgiveness and that love. That he died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead. And because he's alive, he can change my life. And I want that life. I desire that life. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would extend the invitation. And that they they would experience life and love and hope and redemption and forgiveness and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.